0: You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be utterly destroyed by my co-host, John Syracuse, I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is October 21st, 2011. This is episode number 39. We would like to say a quick thank you to our sponsors, Handelobbers, studios makers of GameMinder and Reminder, Shopify.com. The most elegant, customizable, and affordable e-commerce platform in the world. And SourceBits.com. These guys make software for every platform out there. How you doing, John? Just fine. How's your uh, week been? Same as always. Same as always. Productive. (laughs) Productive at work. Oh, yeah. Well, this was a good show. (laughs) That's what that's, you do that for a
1: talk show. That's a talk show line. You got to switch modes. You're in hypocritical mode. Well, right? but you're not talking.
0: I'm getting ready. I'm just
1: getting. I have, oh, you know what? You know ready? what happened,
0: ladies and gentlemen, is that I was actually on time today. I actually, uh, uh, I
1: was sitting here waiting for you to call at exactly
0: then, noon. Uh, John's phone rang, and he's, he's just so not used to us running ahead of schedule if he I think shut It was down. actually
1: 12.01, according to me. No, I,
0: right here on this uh, on this Skype box, I can tell you right here. Is it synced with time.apple.com? Three minutes and 20 seconds we've been recording, so it wasn't quite 11.01 yet. All right, all right. Or 12.01 in your time. All right, so are we ready? Yeah, I'm ready. We're recording. It's already started, man. Yeah, but you usually do the intro. I right? already rec- pre-recorded it. Well, you didn't tell me that. I was so ready for you this time. I'm like, got all my ducks in a row this time. John's not going to know well, what happened.
1: I switched back to showbot that I to look at Titles for Faith Show and everything. <laughs> I'm
0: not yeah. editing any of this out either. All right. Marker. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know what we're talking about, you can listen to episode five of Geek Friday on 5 by 5 and you'll know. You'll know everything then. There's, hey, look, I cross-promoted the show.
1: There you go. Woohoo. Synergy. All right, follow-up.
0: Follow-up. Follow-up from last week. Okay. So the first item
1: of follow-up at the very beginning of last show in a similar type of tangential not really related to anything segment, although I think it was spawned by you. I don't remember how it came up. But anyway, we were talking about uh flu shots and stuff. Uh, and I got a couple complaints about that. And one listener in particular was very angry about that segment of the show. Uh you had asked me, we were talking about flu shots or, or our kids were getting them or whatever. And you'd ask me if you thought it was worthwhile. And then I started pondering and thinking out loud, like, I don't know, well I used to not get flu shots and now I do, but I get colds all the time. And, and I was you know, saying and, you
0: don't get protection and, yeah. from a cold. And from while I'm shot.
1: talking out loud, you're, you kept asking me about whether I thought flu shots prevented the cold. And I was just ignoring you.
0: Oh, uh, and then we doing? moved on
1: to the next segment. Uh, and then uh, this particular listener was saying, are you trying to say that the flu shot prevents a cold? I don't know. The, the two of us were talking past each other in that segment. And it wasn't clear to me during the segment. But when I went back and, went back and listened to it, you could see how someone might get that impression.
0: So I got that but, same impression.
1: Right. And I didn't understand what you were asking about. Because I'm like, what? No. So what I was talking about was, uh, is the flu shot worthwhile? I was thinking, like, overall, does the winter season, do I feel better or worse during the winter season when I get a flu shot or not? And what I was getting at was regardless of whether or not I get a flu shot, in other words, regardless of whether or not I get the flu, the season is dominated for me by a series of annoying colds, which is an entirely different family of viruses and has nothing to do with the flu shot. And so I said, well, when I didn't get the flu shot, I felt miserable the whole winter. And when I did get it, I felt miserable the whole winter. So maybe the flu shot is protecting me from getting the flu. But I felt like the flu was not the dominant factor in my happiness during cold and flu season. So that's what I was getting at. So for people who are confused, the flu shot does not protect you from a cold. And I also uh, said that it protected you from one particular strain of flu. It actually they apparently put several different strains in the flu shot. Some people said three. Some people said five. Uh, someone in the chat room is saying, I, I, you felt better because you didn't get the flu. I don't know. I used to not get the the flu shot ever. And did I get a flu during those times? And people say, well, if you got the flu, you would know it. I, maybe I just never got it. Maybe I'm not susceptible to it. Maybe my colds are very bad and I have difficulty differentiating the symptoms. I, I was just comparing like before the time when I used to get flu shots because I never got them before I had kids. Once you get kids, you kind of get into that flu shot cycle where the kids are getting them and you might as well get them too and everything. So anyway, uh just wanted to clarify that point, so everyone is clear on the uh, the efficacy of the flu shot.
0: I've heard that uh, if you if you don't get a lot of colds, like if you only get one every year or two, that it'll be way worse than if you get them a lot. Could
1: be because I, I get colds constantly, and the symptoms are very similar to flu symptoms. It depends on what age you are and no, how your immune system no, reacts no, and everything. So if you go to a doctor, they're you know, not they're the not same.
0: Gonna, no, they're not the same.
1: Well, it, I don't know. Some you're right. There are some that are all specific to the flu. Like it, but
0: if you have the flu, you feel like you got run over by a truck instantaneously and you yeah, feel well
1: like, it depends different people have different effects. Like some you get the body back. aches and you just feel like you can't get up. Some people children in particular can get uh, uh nauseated and vomiting and everything like that, what usually doesn't happen with a the cold, you know. Cold here's how you know
0: cold always starts with a sore throat.
1: Done. Done. Know. See, I don't sometimes, my colds last winter, I didn't. I just had the post nasal drip thing, which is part of the cold symptoms because it's, I think those viruses take root in your nasal. I'm talking about things I shouldn't be talking about. But anyway, I, the the sore throat you're feeling is not like strep throat is an actual sore throat where that infects that region of your throat. But right? this the post nasal drip thing is where you're getting a cold and it's making your throat feel sore because of that. Anyway, I don't want to talk about germs. And right. You well,
0: can, I mean, you, and again, you also are susceptible to techno organic viruses, and most of us are not. So, uh, so what? What else has been going on? What other do you have?
1: So, Star Wars Blu-rays. Next topic. Oh, did you get these? Uh, I mentioned a couple of shows ago that I was debating about whether I was going to get them, and I said I probably would because the I wanted to see the special features, and I wanted to have a high definition version of Empire Strikes Back because it was the least adulterated of the special edition films, and it was also my favorite. Uh, even though they messed up the color balance and a few other things. I'm like, well, at least they didn't change the content in annoying ways, and I figured it would be worth having. And I had to buy the stupid set that had all of the movies, including the prequels in it, just because these special features are not included in the original trilogy-only set, which was really annoying. So then I think uh, last week, I was complaining about the special features, that they put it in a little window frame and had the surrounding stuff, and that was annoying. Uh, and I'm still going through the special features. This is just from watching these these special features of the thing. I still haven't actually watched any of the actual movies. And during the special feature segments, they're talking about like the making of empire or stuff like that. And they would show segments from empire strikes back, but they would show the high definition version. So here I am getting tiny little snippets of the new high definition version of empire still having not watched it. And they would show a snippet. Like they'd be talking about the Hoth battle scene And they would show a two second clip from the Hoth battle scene while someone talks over it. And they showed a two second clip. I'm like, wait a second. What is that gun turret doing there? like, it was a new gun, you know. The uh, little
0: you re- gun you, thing. you've seen, you've seen it so many times that even something as subtle as just a small gun turret in the background is
1: right problematic and like, for that you. Shouldn't be there. And I, re- I rewound it. And I looked at it again, and it, it looked like they added a CG gun turret to this particular scene with like a little animation where it's like rotating or something. And and then they showed another scene with like a bounty hunter scene, and they were talking about how Boba Fett and how that character came to be and stuff like that. And they showed Boba Fett and showed one of his scenes, and and he says he's no good to me dead. And it wasn't Boba Fett's voice. It was a stupid Django Fett's voice. Someone from the chat room will tell me whether the Django Fett actor is uh, from uh, New Zealand or Australia. I'm sorry that I can't tell the difference. <laughs> so they changed Boba Fett's voice to be the Django Fett voice, which is horrible. And they added a bunch of stuff. And then they were showing some other scenes but just the ADAT walkers moving and stuff. And the, the sides of the ADAT and other metal, gray metal things look like they had a bad Photoshop despeckle filter applied to them. Like, they look too smooth. And I said, did they, did they redo all the ADATs in CG and replace them? Did they, just, did they just put new textures on the outside of them and, like, rotoscope it? Or did they just add, apply some sort of filter? It just looked off. So, apparently, the last time I've seen... <laughs> the last time I saw Empire Strikes must have been these special editions on VHS or something. Like, last time I saw the special edition version. yeah. I don't think this stuff was in those special editions. Certainly, it wasn't high def. And I don't think the extra gun turret was there. And certainly they didn't add the Django Fed voice because that, those movies hadn't been made at the time I watched it. So they are further adulterating Empire Strikes Back. Maybe it was already like on the DVDs too. I don't know. But this is very upsetting. Um, and so I'm uh, even more glad that I got hold of the, what were those things called? The uh, despecialized editions, which are 720p versions of the movies that are trying to be as faithful as possible to the original. Obviously the originals were only available in standard def at this time right uh so they had to take standard def and they tried to clean it up and it's blown up to 720p and it's a little bit fuzzy it certainly doesn't look high def it's not as crisp as this these blu-rays are but everything looks the right way the darth Vader's lightsaber is pink both has voices the right way and there are no weird cg things added where they don't need to be so kind of disappointing uh, and speaking of disappointment front apparently the uh the documentary movie which i wanted to see forever which was only shown at film festivals maybe last year maybe it was the year before that maybe i've been waiting for two years it seems like a long time but this movie is called the people versus george lucas and it's a documentary (laughs) about exactly what it sounds like it's about right someone goes around with a camera crew and talks to geeks and other people who are angry at george lucas i'm like this this movie was made for me uh why can't i see it couldn't find it anywhere wasn't available on netflix couldn't buy it on dvd couldn't get it was only in the film festival circuit Uh, So finally, it is coming out on DVD, I think, this week. So you can go to Amazon.com. I should put a link in the show notes to The People vs. George Lucas. I haven't seen it yet, uh, but I assume I will enjoy it. Uh, One more bit here. Uh, Last show, we talked about the TiVo Premier Elite, Mm. this new Series 4 upgrade of TiVo, uh, an upgrade to the Series 4 TiVo architecture. And I was quoting from an article that I'd found that linked to a forum post, and I had looked at both of those things. What I hadn't done was paged through the entire forum thread. Apparently, the article is written based on the first page or so of the forum thread. But if you keep paging through it, there are many corrections offered. So in in last week's show, I said that the the new TiVo Premiere Elite comes with double the RAM of the previous version. Apparently, it does not. The people in the forum thread got confused about megabits versus megabytes or gigabits versus gigabytes when looking at uh, the uh, part numbers on the RAM. So apparently it has the same amount of RAM as the other one. And I think it also still has the same CPU and everything. So I was trying to find an explanation of why, why it's so much faster from the people's reports that they, they use the menus and the menus feel faster. And it is running a newer version of the software and supposedly it's compiled with a newer version of the compiler. But there's still the outstanding question is, is the TiVo Premier Elite faster because the hardware is faster? Or is it just faster because it has a new version of the software? And there's no definitive answer to that yet. So I'm curious, like, if you wait a year, will the regular TiVo Premier get the new version of the software and it will be speedier too? I don't know. Oh, I was, and I was further frustrated by the fact that the TiVo Premier Elite still has no built-in Wi-Fi. What century is this that they're they're giving you a box that puts well, they, on your they, TV? That's
0: a, they want they want you to buy their, their third-party thing.
1: I say it's like 60 bucks or whatever. I don't just build it in. Like They took out the over the air HD support. The the TiVo Premier used to be able to decode over the air HD signals and record them and everything. So they took out all those supporting chips, put in a Wi-Fi chip. It's got cost two bucks. Stick it in there, please. It's it's ridiculous. So, yeah, you have to stop to buy the dongle. Uh, So I'm still taking a wait and see attitude with the Premier Elite. I'll let it stew for a little longer before I consider buying one and shifting things around in my house. Yeah. Uh, and finally, Siri. We talked a lot about Siri on the past few episodes and we got a lot of feedback on that. Uh, did you put these in the show notes or did I? I don't even remember anymore. I, put, I think I put that one in there. There's a bunch of Siri links. There is uh, uh, one for how Siri works, which right. is kind of inappropriately named is that someone speculating about how it works in terms of how the different components work. You, know, right. you speak, it recognizes you speak, sends it off to a server somewhere after it's translated and there's natural language processing, but I think it's mostly speculative. Uh, there's a good blog post from Kieran Hearley sorry if i your name, Kieran Healy in our chat room uh, about Siri in practice, uh, what Siri is like for him to use. And it goes through a whole bunch of situations where stuff that you would think, stuff that m- some people might think would work ends up not working. Uh, so for example, uh, I, have, I have to use the exact wording from these examples here because it sounds too vague if you don't. Uh, so if you make... Mm, let's see. Let's find a good example. If you make a calendar entry that says, Kieran volunteers at school, right? That's, that's the name of your, thing, your entry in the calendar. And then right. if you ask Siri, when do I volunteer at school? It has no idea what you're talking about. If you ask it, when does Kieran volunteer at school? No idea either. Uh, it just does Google searches for like, I found 11 schools nearby, <laughs> right? Uh, if you say, when is Kieran volunteers at school? which sounds unnatural, but apparently that's the phrasing that it wants, uh, then it will find it. Uh, and here's a similar example. If you make an appointment that just says dentist, which is very similar to the appointments I, I try to make my things on my calendar, which is like one word long, I just put, you know, 2 p.m. dentist, right? If you have a dentist, you can't say when is my dentist appointment. It won't find that. Uh, and and I guess see worse in this example, here's one that says, uh, when does Lori travel to New York, right? If you have an event called travel to New York, it doesn't doesn't find it. So you mm. say, when do I travel to New York? Still doesn't find it. When do I go to New York? No good. Even in this case, when you say when is travel to New York, which is exactly the the construction that worked before. Right. It still doesn't work. It's a Google search. Uh, all these examples would work with a human. Right. Because at the context would say, look, is there any events anywhere in the near future that have anything to do with New York? Like a human would figure it out. Uh, but Siri does not. And the fact that Siri does so well in so many other contexts can make even people who understand that it's not actually real AI uh, have expectations of these things working. And if you, ha- if you end up having to say those four different phrasings and doesn't work all those times, that's when you start to question, like, am I actually being more efficient or no, I'm, now am I playing a game? Am I playing a game with this Siri thing? But don't you
0: think, I- John, that it's, it's just a matter of time before the refinements and and enhancements of that get better. I mean, right now we're starting with something that's, you know, very, very new. And don't you expect that whether it's six months or a year from now, two years from now that little, little things like the way that you phrase it, won't, won't they figure that out? Won't they update it? Won't they make sure in five to 10 years, isn't that the five uh, to 10? Is that what you're saying?
1: They always tell you
0: five to 10. No,
1: whenever you ask any question about AI, they say, yeah, in five to ten years, mm. we'll have access <laughs> to the technical And they've been saying that since 1972. Right. right. Well, see, what I think Siri is more like is game development. So in game development, you have a lot of similar situations where you want to have enemies in a game exhibiting intelligent behavior and providing you with a, good, with a good battle. And with the advent of multiplayer gaming in the past two decades, this has become less important, but it's still there. The pathfinding, how they work as a group, how they react to your actions. The way game developers do it is they cheat? That's what game development is all about. It's like movie making. You have to, you have to cheat. You have to do something that's actually really very simple. Especially in game development, when you have very little CPU resources and stuff to spare because you're using it on all the other stuff that you're doing. So you can't do some sort of deep, deep academic AI that thinks for twenty seconds. You have like hundred sixty milliseconds to make all your AI decisions for all your enemies on the screen or whatever. Uh, they come up with heuristics and things that are not easy for you as the player to figure out what's going on, but that make the enemies appear to be like a little bit more intelligent. And that's what series got to end up doing because the, the actual solution, solving the real problem, like actually making something that understands what you're talking about is way, way, way harder than anything that's going to happen probably in our lifetimes. It's the problem that has been worked on academia for all of our lives and will continue long after we're gone and it's really, really hard. But you can make something that... Using, you know, cheats and hacks and other things that are not have nothing to do with the way the human thinks or and really don't don't exhibit any sort of understanding in our sense, but they give you the right answer. Watson is a great example of that. Watson has no idea what the heck it's doing. Doesn't have any awareness of, you know, it's a bunch of really smart heuristics that happens to win the game of Jeopardy. Right. (laughs) But if you pose just an (laughs) arbitrary question to Watson or if you replace Siri with Watson, uh, it would probably do better because Watson has way more computing resources but it would probably be slower because Watson is a little bit slower than uh, Siri, I think. But those type of hacks and cheats where we're not trying to make something that's intelligent. We're not trying to make something that's even as smart as a cockroach. Like we're not, we're not doing that. We're trying to make something that performs the function that we want Siri to perform in a way that seems amazing, but may have nothing to do with the way a human would perform the same task. And that's how I think Siri will advance. It's not as if like, well, in a few years, they'll figure it out and Siri will be awesome and it'll be able to understand us. No, in, in a few years, they'll make their AI better in the same way the game AI has gotten better in the same period of time. Because they have similar resource constraints. You don't have like a giant supercomputer dedicated to you. You need your answer right now. And they have a similarly narrowly defined set of things that they need to do. It doesn't need to be a general purpose thing. It you know has to know about reminders and, and uh, events and the few things that exist in the world of the phone and the things you can do with the phone, just like Watson just doesn't know about Jeopardy questions, right? And Watson doesn't need to, to solve calculus problems if you pose a calculus problem to it it will not give you the answer because that's not jeopardy questions never ask things like that so I, I think Siri will get better uh, but uh, there was another link in the show notes I think I put this one in here uh, so from the former lean, lead iPhone developer of the standalone Siri application we went back when it was an app before I guess before Apple bought them. Uh, And one of the headings of his article is how Siri is not really – it's called It's Not Really AI as a heading of a section where he's backing up my point of view and my particular definition of AI where when he says it's not really AI, he means the same things I do. It's not AI the way science fiction thinks of AI as in it's really intelligent. It's artificial and it's trying to be intelligent, but it's not AI AI. Uh, So. For all the people telling me, well, of course, this artificial intelligence is artificial and is trying to be intelligent. That's (laughs) not the definition that I'm using. It's also not the definition that the person who created Siri is using or developed it anyway. You're talking
0: very much about something that is self aware. I don't
1: even need self awareness. Just like. Uh, something as smart as a toddler, where you could converse with it like you converse with a with a toddler, or with a or with a five year old, right? Where I think, speaking of cockroach, the last time I looked into the AI field, that was about the level of intelligence we felt like we were able to accurately simulate cockroach. Yeah. Yeah, like very very simple stimulus, very simple reactions. Uh, and even that is debatable. It's like, well, the, uh, actually, the cockroach exhibits much more, much more sophisticated behavior than your program. But, yeah. So, that's, I think that's... Do we have any more links for Siri? Let me see. Oh, a you, you put them. this one in with Andy Rubin yeah. talking about your, your phone should not be an assistant. Uh, yeah, and all I new. did when I saw that link was just uh, added a link below it to uh, Gruber's take on that, because, which I agree with 100%. He's like, well, what else is he going to say? That's what Gruber said on Daring Fireball. You know, another product has a headline feature, and he, he's not going to say, "Yeah, that's actually pretty good." He's, that's just not how competition works. Yeah, uh, sort of like when when Android had all this great voice support and the iPhone didn't. If you were, if you could ever get a comment from an Apple person, you would say, "What do you think all this voice stuff that Google's doing?" You know, in, in Android, any place in the UI, you can just uh, you know speak and do dictation and stuff like that, and they would have had if. Apple was willing to comment at all, they would have had to come up with some sort of answer. Um, and I'm sure they would have tried to say something bad. Like, well, we think that technology is not quite ready. And if we were to do it, we would do it in a different, better way. Or I don't know. You, you, you always say something that's not so nice to your competition. Uh, and uh, Gruber's example was how jobs would always poo poo things before Apple did them. Like, oh, no, we don't want video on an iPod. It's too small to watch. And then when they do it, it's no, like, no. Well,
0: greatest. actually, what Apple would say is nobody wants to watch a video on it on a small screen.
1: Yeah, or, or even Nobody on, on wants the uh, the ebook thing, like, well, people don't read anymore. It's, yeah. it's pointless. And then they come out with iBooks and then they make no mention of that. So that's just, that's just competition. I don't put anything into that, you know. You shouldn't be talking to your phone. Well, eventually Android will. And I think Google's actually head on a lot of these things. I'm surprised they didn't phrase that differently because Google has clearly been really into the voice support and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, there there's been for a long time voice support in Android and in fact I remember when uh when the first signs of Siri coming out were were there, the, you know, it was out and people were immediately saying which is better, Siri or Android. Now I also want to make a distinction is that there's Siri and then there's I don't know if you would call it dictation or speech attack speech yeah be, be, because you can go into any of apple's apps and any place where there is text entry where the little keyboard slides up you now also have a little microphone so you can tap the microphone and just dictate and it it has a it has a little microphone so you you tap you tap the little microphone button and in place of the keyboard there comes up a little uh, just a little, a bigger button, and you can, and which has a microphone on it, you tap that, you start talking, you tap it again when you're done talking, and it very, very, very quickly, very quickly. Now, I understand it's still using, they're still using uh, the internet, it's still sending that out for processing. It's not happening locally on the phone, or at least most of it's not. But it sends that out uh, to the internet and comes back very quickly with the... Uh, this speech to text, you know, dictation, and then you have your text message or your email or whatever it was that you were composing. I feel like there's a differentiation, like to me, and maybe, maybe there isn't, maybe there isn't a distinction, but to me, I would almost want to say that's not Siri because it's just doing the text to speech. It's speech to text rather. It's not doing, there's no figuring out what I mean there's no taking an action or trying to provide an answer or looking anything up. It's just saying, "I heard these sounds, and I'm making them into text for you
1: well it's it's half of uh, because it's, that's an important part of Siri like I think nuance they're using the nuance stuff, and nuance is the ones that do drag and dictate and everything so that's their right. that's their speech recognition engine, and then they have the language processing engine that figures out what to do right so but without that first half, obviously Siri would not be useful so Using the word Siri to describe it as, as you know, just lazy branding is an interesting way to say it. But uh, the thing about the dictation uh, that I think about is that, so I have the Dragon, uh, or I have Mac Speech Dictator, Dragon Dictator, whatever, whatever they renamed it to when Nuance bought the Mac Speech guys. And it uses the Nuance Speech Recognition Engine. It, it even did before they bought them. I think they just licensed it. Uh, and you have to train it. When you buy it, you have to read through this five-minute thing where you read and, and it and it, you know... It highlights words as you read them, and then eventually learns your voice and saves a voice profile that's tied to both you and your microphone. So this is you. Uh, and the iPhone obviously doesn't have that training period. You just take it out of the box, and you can go into a notes app and hit the little microphone thing and start talking, and it'll, it'll make text. And, and, like, within Siri, you can say, well, the vocabulary is constrained because it's just reminders and events and, and whatever else you can do with Siri. But within just generic dictation, you can say anything you want. Uh, now, there is a sort of natural language processing component of speech recognition. It's not just saying what what sounds did you make and what word corresponds to them. It knows the context. It knows, well, usually after this word, this word is more likely to come than that word, even though they both sound the same. Uh, I don't know. What's the... Uh, uh, Rex, a nice beach. Have you heard that one? W-R-E-C-K-S. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A nice beach. Instead of recognized speech, uh, depending on how you slur, they can sound very similar. But one sentence is much more likely than the other. Uh, and... So there is, and that Siri does the same thing, like in this context, following the things they've said previously, what word is this most likely? And and it has a constrained vocabulary. So even within the world of dictation, there's some kind of Siri-like intelligence where, because that's just how the nuanced speech dictation works. It's not just convert sound to word in isolation. It's consider everything that has been said before and after and what is the most likely sentence that comes out of this. Uh, So I think it's kind of fair to label all that as Siri. And and you know, again, getting back to Google, they've been gung-ho for this for a long time. On the Google homepage, I think on the web browser, if you're using Chrome or whatever, there's a little microphone icon and you can just dictate right into it. They they right. love this kind of, they've got the self-driving cars, to so crying out loud. Obviously, this is right up Google's alley. Of so course. it's not as if Google is going, is not interested in this field. If anything, they were ahead in this field. And Apple, in typical fashion, simply packaged it better and got out ahead with just the parts that are the most attractive to users. Not worrying so much about the self-driving cars for now.
0: Right. This sponsor, this first sponsor is right up your alley, John. Yeah. Game Minder. Do you game? game I Minder. do. Well, this app is for you. This app, Game Minder, knows when apps are coming out, games, everything. So you don't have to worry about it. You hear about a game, even if it's years away, you search for it in Game Minder. You use their Reminder app, and it little let you know when it's coming out so you can just keep playing. Xbox, PS3, Wii, PC, Mac, iOS, even these new, uh, what is this one called, PlayStation Vita? Vita. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it either. Anyway, they, and they get the inside scoop on stuff. So that's their first app, Game.Minder. The second one is Read.Minder. So iOS gives you this Reminders app, but if you want more features, if you want them tied into GameMinder, uh, if you want a more advanced schedule, more customization, Reminder has that. And even better is Reminder Pro Plus, which is uh, the, the Mac Daddy app. Well, for all week long, for just for five by five listeners, they've dropped the price of Reminder Pro Plus. It's on sale, fifty percent off. So you can search for re.minder in the iTunes store, or you can just go to five by 5tv slash hypercritical slash thirty-nine for this episode, and the link will be there. That's our first sponsor. Thanks to Handel Umbra.
1: You know that game reminder app, that's a very an application of its time because it's kind of so it's going to remind you about games like you're like oh this game coming out I want I want to not forget when that comes out. So you're enough of a gamer to know that a game is coming out ahead of time and to be excited enough about it that you would be annoyed if you forgot about it. But you're not hardcore enough of a gamer to be constantly playing games and like well of course I would never forget about that. So it's basically people like us who were big gamers when we were younger, but now you have a family and responsibilities and stuff like that. It's it's the casual hardcore gamer. You would be a hardcore gamer if you had the free time you had when you were in your teens or 20s or whatever, but now you have more responsibilities, but you don't want to miss that great game. So you you have yeah. an application that is going to remind you of it. Uh, I think of things like that all the time, although in one particular case, I've been waiting for a game for like three years now and it's killing me and I don't need a reminder for it. But sometimes I I lose track of when it's supposed to be coming out. That game is uh, The Last Guardian from uh, the team that made Ico and Shadow of the Closets. Of course. Or possibly yeah. Ico, possibly depending on how you pronounce it. People can write <laughs> and tell me. Uh, but yeah, I've been waiting for that game forever and I just asked the people who are more up on games and I, when, when did they say that's coming out now? Oh, it got delayed again or whatever. So yeah, the, that application for, for the casual hardcore gamer, they can use that line if they like. Although I think it's probably insulting to most people. But anyway, I think it's very useful. Or what do we have? Oh, and one more thing on Siri. Uh, we were talking about using Siri with Apple TV and yeah. the problems inherent in that setup where the thing is far away from you, but it has to understand your speech and there could be other people talking in the room. And mostly I was thinking of it as a way uh, a way to solve the input problem because the input options for a television are not very rich. They're just a remote control with a couple of buttons or directional control. And especially for things like if you just want to turn it on, and show some movie for the kid. And people saying, well, the, the room is going to be too noisy and you don't want to have an expensive thing like an iPod to be used. What can you do? A couple of suggestions were like, well, put a little microphone in the remote. My main suggestion was just, you know, pare it all down and go simple and say, look, it's not always listening to you. You have to press a button to make it listen. You have to talk right into a thing and you would be done. Uh, and you can't do it when the television is on people are like well what if the television is playing some show and it interprets the speech on the show as commands and then people say well you could cancel the audio out because it knows what it's emitting so you know sort of like a carrier sense multiple access in ethernet where it would say well i'm emitting this and if uh you know i can cancel out what i'm emitting and see if anything else was on the line you know in the air uh there are lots of technical solutions but i would simplify it i would just say you can't do it when the television is playing uh, and you have to talk right into a thing and you have to activate a mode for it. And even that alone, which is very primitive, it's just easier to, you know, pick up the thing and say, play cars and have it play the cars move instead of having to navigate through 50 menus and launch some application and find the cars movie for you. Or, you know, uh, record the Cowboys game tonight or something to use uh, Gruber's favorite team. It be That's where you had some Siri intelligence where it can figure out the cow, who the Cowboys are, if there's any programs in the upcoming schedule for the night that have anything to do with cowboys or you know you could add some intelligence to make that work it's easier than flipping through the thing and trying to find the show you want to record uh, so I, I still think there's potential for this i did like the idea of putting a microphone in the remote and basically my my strategy would be don't try to do something really complicated uh, make it very simple very constrained very limited and it would still be better than using a little direction pad to go c left left up up down down right right oh up up down down left left right you know that's annoying we hate that and and i wouldn't suggest as the google tv thing is we'll just give them a keyboard and i'll put the no i don't want a keyboard on my couch i don't want a slider remote that opens up into a keyboard it would be nice if you could just talk to it and it would work oh uh, and someone made a web page with a mock-up of that by the way that's what i have in the, in the show notes yeah think that's it for follow-up
0: you sure yeah unless you had anything else for follow no no i want to get onto the new stuff the good the good stuff well, i the next thing i have
1: is it that's kind of follow-up so i want to talk a little bit about icloud a little bit more about icloud
0: well you know i got uh, the phones showed up last friday a week ago and i've had a week to experiment with icloud things I don't know if I'll be able to answer all of your questions, but I imagine you've also been experimenting with it there, right?
1: Yeah, in a limited fashion. Mostly this is a reaction to listening to Back to Work where Merlin went off on iCloud a little bit uh, and listening to his experiences because he's, he was brave enough to use the betas, which I never was. I was like, I'm not putting any of my data. You know, I, I did no, I didn't either. register for iCloud with a new Apple ID during the Lion beta just to see what it was like, but that was such a long time ago and I never put any of my real data into it. It was just me fiddling around with stuff but he's tried to put his real data into it and run into all sorts of weird issues and one of his big objections was that he seems to have no it's not trustworthy it's not as trustworthy as dropbox because he's not ever sure what's going on in that other place he can see what's on his devices and on his mac but he's never sure if it wasn't there until he looked it's kind of a uh Schrodinger's cat kind of situation where it's like well if I didn't look at that pages document I just boarded a plane when I was on the plane I tried to pull up the pages document would it not be there and it would try to fetch it at that point at which point It doesn't have it versus Dropbox where he just looks at the little icons sees the checkbox, and check mark on the menu bar icon and knows it's got everything. It's all synced, you know That was the great title of that episode. It's never not everywhere whereas with iCloud. He's not so sure And it got into like, you know If you want to delete a photo from your photo stream there's no way to do that You got to reset the whole stream and that is not ideal. And I think I talked about a little bit how it was more like a conduit and they weren't, they didn't want you to have, it's not a place you're supposed to think of like, it's more like they just wanted to appear on all your devices. They wanted it to work the way Dropbox works, but when it doesn't, you don't have a, a, as much of an out, a, a mechanism to reach into that middle place and see what's there and manipulate it, right? Now, what I want to say about this is something I was going to do an iCloud section in my line review and I cut it, but... What I would have put in there is my understanding of the iCloud philosophy from talking to people at WWDC and going to sessions
0: and stuff like that.
1: Uh, and how it how it is different than the mobile me philosophy. Now I don't know if you did
0: you use mobile me syncing a lot? No. I mean early on I did a few years ago, but I I stopped using mobile me when I mean, certainly by the time Dropbox was out, I stopped using it because I wasn't, you know, I, I'm kind of weird, I guess, in that I don't use a lot of bookmarks. There's only a handful of them. So it's not like I and I have that many machines I want to sync them back and forth to. And that was, for me, that was the big selling point of mobile me. I never used iDisk. I never used the photo albums anyway. So what's left? I mean, the syncing stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, key, it was great for
1: syncing, address book syncing. You didn't do any of those?
0: Uh you know I don't do a lot with keychain uh generally speaking because I use one password address book syncing you could do with Google uh so there really wasn't that much value of it for for value there for me after a while so I had stopped doing it but it sounds like
1: Merlin was actually trying to use iDisk which is braver than I was
0: but uh, I, I I had did, such a bad experience with iDisk
1: yeah and I did I did keychain syncing I still do keychain syncing your Yojimbo syncing which uh Gruber mentioned that he uses as well, and the, the, the thing about Mobile Me syncing is it was so it was a very similar experience. Where, although actually, you know, there's an API just like iCloud where the applications can use this API, and you could choose on which machine you wanted which things to be synced to with the little you know, preference pane uh, and the little icon on desktop that shows when it's syncing and stuff. But the, the key difference is that the Mobile Me and the sync services infrastructure that's built on. I think syncs, the sync services predate me. Maybe it was in the .Mac days, too, but I don't know. It's all the same thing. Same thing. The, the underlying architecture was that the sync stuff would run, and so if you pretend everything is in sync, and then uh, you go on one machine that's disconnected from the internet, and you and you uh, change somebody's uh, phone number to end in a four, and you go on another machine, and you change that same guy's phone number to end in a five. Right, then when you sync those two machines on one of them, or possibly both of them, you'd get a dialog that says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! One of these machines thinks this number should be a four, and the other one thinks it should be a five. Which one is right?" You'd be presented with a conflict resolution dialog. Do you remember that thing? Yes. Where it would show, it would basically show your computer has a five, but dot Mac has a four. Choose one. Right. And then there was a checkbox at the bottom that says, "Make the same decision for all of them." So if you decided dot Mac was canonical like, oh, I'm sure what's on dot .Mac is what I really want. So you could just say, don't don't ask me about these during the sync process. Just go through the rest of them and just take what dot .Mac has. But if you're paranoid, you'd go through each one. Oh, .Mac has this, and you have that. right It would also prompt you if it was ever going to change a certain percentage of the things like, I'm about to change more than 20% of your contacts. Let me bring up this dialogue that says, are you sure you want to do this? Here's what it looks like. Yeah. .Mac has these contacts, and you have these, right? Uh, Yojimbo was a great torture test for sync services. I don't know if you call it great. I don't know if Apple would call it great, but your Jimbo is this sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like a shoebox application where you can just put anything in there. You can put uh, captures of web pages, bookmarks, uh, rich text documents, uh, I think there's PDFs, all sorts of stuff you can throw into your Jimbo. And some of these can be very large, even just a big capture of a very long web page, because it will save all the images associated with the web page and the whole thing. It will like you know get like a web archive of it, right? And when your Jimbo came out, what you'd get was the dialogue would come up and say, you know, .Mac has this, and your Mac has that. And what it would show is a giant hexadecimal dump of binary data of like three megabytes of binary data. And if it was over a certain size, you'd get the spinning beach ball right. in front of that review dialogue, and you'd never be able to do anything. So now you're stuck. You can't sync your Mac because your, the sync services can't handle the volume of data it's being asked to to review the changes to. And it, it wouldn't matter anyway, because you can't make heads or tails of this hex dump. All you can really look at <laughs> is the dates and say, oh yeah, I remember I changed that over there. And I should replace it on this Mac, you know. That experience, right, part of that is bugs, right? Sync services not being good. Part of that is design where they didn't have an interface where the applications could provide a piece of code that would say, I know how to display Yojimbo documents. So when someone asks for a diff on a Yojimbo document, use my code and display this diff, you know, because sync services would just fall back to, oh, here's a binary dump. Make sense of that. Good luck. Uh, so that was a feature uh, miss, uh, uh, missing features there. And so they sorted out the performance eventually, much thanks, I'm sure, to Yojimbo and all of its users torture testing it and, you know, back and forth between Apple and bare bones to get that working. And now it does work really well. And I don't get those dialogues anymore. And it certainly doesn't beach ball and freeze anymore. That took many years to get to, though, and many years involving all sorts of, as Merlin pointed out, strange incantations to reset things on the mobile me side, including these super secret Apple internal applications. that can do a hard, hard reset of your mobile me state to just wipe everything clean. Not a fun experience, right? Yeah. But but the big design change that, that Apple decided was a mistake with Mobile Me was ever presenting the user with a dialog that, that to resolve a conflict, because then you're making them make a choice. And no matter how good you make that decision, and no matter how much information you provide, and if you had a custom UI, they could t- show you exactly the differences or whatever. Regular users are not like programmers; they don't want to see a side by side diff and make a decision. And so, how do you get? How do you get rid of that but still deal with the situation when you have one computer that changed the phone number to end with a 4 and one computer changed to end with a 5? What's what's the answer? Obviously there has to be some winner there because they, the same phone number can't be, you know, have two different endings, right? So the iCloud philosophy is don't ever show anyone a dialog box to ask them to make a decision. And that's in keeping with Apple's philosophy of just not presenting options and just it's annoying. You're like don't don't bother me with this. I don't want to hear about it, right? But to make sure you know, and then, and then iCloud basically has to pick a winner. But to make sure you don't screw the user over, like say you pick the wrong thing, iCloud philosophy seems to be if you have two things that conflict in some way, uh, uh, their big hammer to solve this is versioning. So pick a winner, push the loser onto the stack of versions, and then push the winner onto the stack of versions. So no prompts, no information, no decisions you're being asked to make. That's why this can happen when you're not in front of the thing. Like it can sync to your phones by push. and You know, the, the device could have the screen turned off as laying on your desk, right? You don't want to pick up your phone and turn it on and have 50 dialogues saying for you to resolve conflicts, right? It says, I'm just going to pick a winner based on some simple heuristic, like you know the least most recently updated or whatever it rules they decide. But it doesn't really matter because I... The loser, I pushed onto the stack of different versions and your application and the APIs are supposed to provide you with a way to get back that old version if you decide, wait a second, what's going on here, right? Uh, and in the WWC keynote, they didn't emphasize this as much as they emphasized the other thing, which was there's no place you go or app you run or thing you do for iCloud. It's built into your applications. So their ideal scenario is the applications themselves do the hard work to implement all this functionality, to like, oh, how do I get back my previous version, Uh, you know, to to pull the sync versions when I make a change, push it down to the cloud, when they they launch the application, pull the changes from the cloud, all this business, make it in the application. So there's no other place to go. And it just seems to magically work. That's the ideal scenario. But as Merlin is finding, that relies on all the applications doing all this fancy stuff. And even Apple's own applications may be making decisions about how to implement this stuff that are different. So if Pages, for example, if, if you can only get your Pages documents by launching Pages, and if you don't launch Pages that hasn't synced with the cloud, that's bad because that's not what that's not what Merlin expects of it. That's not what, how Dropbox would work because Dropbox is always running. All right? So they're trying to balance the need to have some always running third-party application syncing all your files with the idea that they don't want it to be a thing that you deal with. They don't want any decisions. They don't want a a third thing that you deal with or a place that you go. They don't want an iSync application that you launch and hit a sync button. They don't even want like a little sync process that appears. They just want it to all be transparent. But when you violate some assumption like the network is always available and you board a plane and you try to get your pages documented and it's not there, that's an upsetting experience. So people like Merlin and me and you, I'm sure, would like to have enough control to say, all right, I I know enough about the internals to know that before I board this plane, make sure my Dropbox is synced. And then I'll know I'll have everything, you know, I see the little checkmark, I'm good to go on the plane because I've got all the stuff locally. So this is an implementation detail that you understand, right? Versus hiding this all and having nothing visible to anybody and not being sure... Well, is there a background process in ios 5 that's pulling these things i think there is for photo stream but is it does it pull pages documents too or do i have to launch pages and maybe i should just launch pages to be safe and even when you launch pages if you saw your document listed another implementation detail could be oh well pages just pulled the metadata from iCloud it didn't pull documents and this is something that iCloud does by the way because it wants to be parsimonious with uh its usage of the 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 network and everything and so it, it may only pull the metadata. Oh, yeah, this is document. This is how big it is. And here's like a preview image. But you don't have the document yet until you open the document. So you, you get into this paranoia mode where you're like, let me just make sure I have everything. Okay, loaded. Or did it load everything? Or maybe it only loaded the first page. I made it, Maybe I should scroll through the thing. It, obviously, it's us overthinking it. But we're overthinking it because we run into situations where stuff is not always everywhere, as Merlin put it. And so we get paranoid about it because we know about the implementation. But this implementation, this whole thing with... Uh, rabin or Rebin fingerprinting that i talked about in the lion review is an efficient way to to send and receive just the changes to files and to chunk them up into pieces so you you know the pieces don't all change when a one byte at the end of the file changes it will then shift all the bytes over in the other pieces like they're trying to be efficient about network access and data storage and not constantly running stuff but they're also trying to make it appear like everything is everywhere and there's a conflict between those things uh and on top of that, the never prompting for what you should do. So there's not even any place where you would go where you'd say, just, just pull everything. I'm going to board a plane. Just anything that's in the cloud. I've got an hour before my flight leaves. Just just pull it all now because I'm on Wi-Fi. There's no button for that because there's no place to go for that. And that's at, as designed. Uh, so I, I think these are all solvable problems. And I think Apple did choose the right thing of not prompting people for those conflicts and having it all trying to be automated. But it's obvious that Sometimes the assumptions built into Apple's system are being violated, uh, like when the network isn't uh, accessible, and that sort of breaks the illusion there. And I think applications need to be updated to... I don't, I don't know if they need to be updated. Like, would you want pages to pull every single one of your documents all the time? Some people would say yes. Maybe, that, maybe you have to have some sort of preference at that level or some way for it to do it. Or the I'm going to board a plane button or something like that. Uh, but Apple might say, well, that's, that's an edge case and we don't want that at all. And most people are always near a network. Uh, you know, because how many times? How often are you on a plane? So we'll just pull it on demand because that's the most efficient way to do things. Uh, it, it's upsetting to Merlin, and it may be upsetting to tech heads. I wonder how regular people will feel about the transparency of iCloud. I don't know if we have any. Maybe we could ask Faith if she, I don't know if she's making documents that are being synced through iCloud or how how she's experienced this.
0: Well, she's editing the the other show, but I'll ask her.
1: I, know. I, I it'll be interesting. It's going to be a while before anyone in my extended family gets any iOS 5 devices because they're all using older iPods, many of which can't be upgraded to that. They don't don't have iPhones. They're still using mobile me. Eventually, they'll be on iCloud and everything. It'll be interesting to see what they think of the syncing experience. As I I said last week, the fact that you can do something on one device, like take a picture with your phone, and it automatically shows up at your other devices, and that part actually works, that is like 90% of the battle for regular people, I think. They didn't have to do anything. They just signed in. It just magically worked. And the details about, well, what if I want to delete it or what if I get on a plane or are my pages documents really there, as much as that annoys people like us, I think that's probably the 80 90% solution and those details are
0: not going to be that big of a deal. Source Bits, providing software design and development services for iOS, Android, Mac, and the web. SourceBits is at the bleeding edge of emerging technologies. Their deep experience and successful track record makes it so that you have an idea, you want to get it done, you just go to SourceBits.com and you tell them about it and they make it happen. You have a web app piece, you have an Android version, iOS, doesn't matter. They, they just do it. They do it all. They do it right the first time and they save you money because you don't have to do it twice. SourceBits.com. Cutting edge app development. I gave them that, that slogan, slogan, not logo. Slogo. I gave them that. So generous. It's their slogan. They can do whatever they want with it. It's theirs. They're going to have to run with this. I mean, I'm just the idea guy. Sourcebits.com. So in
1: our remaining time, I, have, I guess I'll circle. I still don't have time. I thought maybe I'd get to... The what ails Microsoft that's still being pushed off. we
0: got to give some hints, drop some hints.
1: Oh, I'm going to do a Microsoft topic and we'll creep up on it. I still have a little tiny bit of Windows 8 stuff straggling from way, way back, four shows ago or something. This is a long circle back, but events transpired that prevented that from coming. So I'll try to finish up uh, my thoughts on this Windows 8 video, which I'll have to put in the show notes. This was a demonstration of Windows 8 from, was it a month ago? It's a long time ago talking about the UI, the philosophy behind the UI and some of the things behind it. So I have at the tail end of those. I think I can fit those in here. So I think where I left off last time uh, was on contracts. I didn't talk about them at all. Uh, so contracts is a concept in Windows 8 that that allows applications to work together without knowing anything about each other. And there are lots of technologies on all platforms that fit the description. for example the clipboard on the mac is a mechanism like that you can copy text from one application and paste in the other and those two applications those developers need never have known anything about each other never met like there's an intermediary they both with the work with the intermediary and the intermediary does the job of translating between and then the mac clipboard does all sorts of stuff with storing different representations like the the sending application will send one or two representations and then the receiving application will say which ones it can receive but that's that's a very basic form of having applications work together without knowing anything about each other and that was fairly revolutionary when the mac came out the idea that you can copy from any application and paste into any other and for some platforms like linux say that's, a, that's still revolutionary uh, but that's due to accidents of history maybe that's a cheap shot uh, so contracts in windows 8 are a richer version of that uh, well, actually before i get to contracts let's think about how that works in ios there is a There's the clipboard in iOS, right, finally, where you can copy and paste stuff from one place to the other. But there's also uh, this weird thing with URL schemes where you can register a URL scheme. You just make up one. Instead of HTTP colon slash slash, it's like my cool app name colon slash slash. And if you register that with the system, then when the regular URL opening APIs find an API that begins with that, they'll say, oh, when I see this URL, I have to launch this other app and provide it with this thing. Uh, And that's a really rudimentary way that you can, from one application, like, you know, Uh, open a PDF and find any app. Well, that's slightly different than the thing where they figure out what apps can understand PDFs. But there are uh, very primitive ways by registering URL scheme handlers or by by registering with the system which kinds of documents that you understand that applications can provide content to each other through this intermediary of the system which knows which applications can handle which pretend protocols and which file uh, extension. So contracts is a severely cranked up version of that where... The middleman isn't just a clipboard and it isn't just a registry of file types and url schemes it's a middleman with some rich understanding of, of a few particular things and so you can oh, let me see, what's one of the what's one of the uh, the contracts here let me find a, a solid example so there's there's a search system service to search things, and if an application if there's something searchable inside an application, an application will write support for the search contract and it will become available as a thing that can be searched. Uh, and, and even goes so far as to when it brings up the UI for searching stuff, if you're searching within your application, your application gets a chance to present uh, its content the way it wants to present it or present a UI that makes sense within that application. Uh, you know, so there's this actual UI component, an actual segment of your own code running to provide this interface. Uh, I think do they do it for settings too. I think they do it for settings as well. Like, so in in iOS, where you've got the settings application, do you remember when iOS first came out, they said, oh, don't put your preferences in your application. Right, put them put all, them in, all settings. in settings. And Mac users were like, well, I got to leave the application to tell whether I want the background in this thing to be light or dark. Why can't I just do it within here? I so, said, no, no, go, go to the settings app. Setting app is actually kind of similar, where you write something that defines data structure that the settings application reads and says, oh, here's how I can provide settings to this other application. Oh, well, settings in Windows 8, use the contracts thing, to uh, provide uh, it's, it's their charms on the side or whatever to provide a, a centralized ui for all settings and re- applications write to this the settings contract thing to be able to present their ui in that context uh, instead of just providing data structure they have, actually have a chance to draw things on the screen and stuff uh, now the thing that this contracts i'm i'm probably doing a bad job of Describing all the richness available in contracts because it's been a while since I've seen this video and my notes are not ringing all the bells back. But the, the things that the contracts made me think of when I first saw it is like, so obviously this is like clipboard on steroids, or it's better than registering file types and protocol handles like an iOS. So it's clearly a, a step up in cooperation between applications, providing more interesting cooperation and a, a richer set of behaviors for cooperation. And what it made me think of, because I'm an old man and an old Mac user, was publish and subscribe. Do you remember that?
0: Hmm. No.
1: No, this was maybe in the 90s. I should find a Wikipedia link for this. So sometime when Apple was busy making strange new technologies, but they weren't all really sticking like it was early enough that Apple was still doing really interesting things, but late enough that they were starting to do interesting things that people would look at and go, "Eh, I don't know. Kind of like I think this was before OpenDoc. Before Power Talk, if anyone remembers that, probably not. Uh, so, publish and subscribe was similar type of thing where there was a, a there was an API defined in the system where applications could say, "Would you like to publish something?" Well, use this publish API and say, "I am publishing this this graph from my spreadsheet application." And then, in your word processor, the word processor would say, "Well, I'm going to subscribe to that graph from this other application." And then there would be like a little square inside your word processing application that showed. The spread the the graph from your spreadsheet application. Even though you know the two applications might not have not known anything about each other, they just happen to both support publish and subscribe. Someone in the chat room was pointing out this is very similar to OLE object linking and embedding. Microsoft had a series of alphabet soup technologies which did similar things, and this is kind of I believe publish and subscribe is like a reaction to what Microsoft was doing, uh, and it never caught on. Very few applications ever had publish and subscribe items. That metaphor didn't fit. But the reason I thought of it was because I just thought it was funny that. So the, the intent is to do similar things. Have applications cooperate in a very rich way, right? You know, and, and the, by the way, the, the embedding thing or the, the publisher described is like when you updated that chart in your spreadsheet, it would also update in your word processor. And again, those two applications need not know anything about each other. They just went through this API. But so what Apple chose as the branding and the metaphor for this action was like something from the world of... of a literature or print you publish something and the other thing subscribes to it like a magazine or you know or it's, you know it's kind of kind of arty whereas microsoft shows contracts which has like a legal a legal connotation where well you know we're, we're not publishing artwork and subscribing to it we're making a contract because that's what we understand here at microsoft is legally binding agreements between parties i i wonder about stuff like that where does anyone think about do, wor- do they just have to pick a different name because Publish and Subscribe was already used and, and that thing didn't work and <laughs> they don't want to use that? Or And so that's why we have to pick contracts? Or is that the first thing that comes to mind? And do they think about like the the psychology behind their choice of names? Uh, it just struck me as uh, odd. Uh, but the, the contracts technology itself, I think, is a great thing for Apple to look at and steal because one of the longest-standing complaints from iOS developers is they want more, richer... Better cooperation between applications. They're all, you know, they're all sandboxed. They can't touch each other's stuff. But sometimes it makes so much sense to have them talk to each other, and in a way that doesn't require you to. Even if you wrote both the applications in iOS, it's hard. It's hard to make them cooperate. But w- the ecosystem would be better if there was a standardized, supported way for any application to do interesting things with each other. Uh, and this, this also goes back to the sandboxing, sandboxing argument on the Mac and the Mac App Store, where people are cranky that. The new rules for sandboxing in the Mac App Store are preventing things that used to work uh, in inter-application communication on the Mac using Apple events and scriptability and stuff like that. Those are going away. And meanwhile, on iOS, people want more of that. They would love to be able to, you know, send not uh, Apple events, but some equivalent of talking in a sophisticated way between applications w- within the rules that, you know, let, let me speak out of my sandbox. Let me say, hey, I have something cool to provide you or if you're a photo editing application, I would like to pop up a menu that says, would you like to edit this picture in and then list all of the interesting photo editing applications. You can kind of do that now with file types, but they they want more complicated types of arrangements and contracts provides that. So if and when Windows 8 actually does ship, I think this contract API will, the API itself at least, will probably be the envy of most iOS developers if Apple hasn't uh, caught up by then. That's the thing about the Windows 8 stuff is they're showing a product that's not going to ship until like I think 2012 or something. I don't know how and maybe the end of 2012, it's going to be a while. Like they showed it long before it's ready to come out. So by that point, you know, is iOS 6 out yet? Is 5.5 or whatever out? You know, it's hard to compare to say, oh, Microsoft is ahead. Well, Microsoft's not ahead until they ship. Um, and Apple is shipping iOS 5. So it's fair to compare iOS 5 with, you know, you don't want to compare it with Microsoft has now. So anyway, I'll be interested to see how how things are when this stuff actually ships. But I think right now Apple should be, that Apple should have been working on this for a long time because, like I said, it's a long-standing uh, uh iOS developer complaint. And I think it's really important because all the sandboxing and security stuff that Apple's is doing is great. But it's getting to the point now where iOS developers are feeling limited by by Apple's rules. And so they need to figure out a way to do this. And a mediated system, a mediated defined system likes contracts where it's defined by the the vendor and you can always do a certain amount of things and you have, a, you know, it's a limited API. It's not just like arbitrary Apple scripting, you know, where you could your application could just send an Apple event to the address book and say, give me all your contacts, although I think you might be able to do that already anyway, uh, use it through different means. But you can't just have a wide open field like you could on the Mac, where any application can control any other using arbitrary code, but you don't want everyone to be so isolated uh, like they are now. Uh, There's more Windows 8 stuff. Uh, notifications was another interesting yeah. uh, place that was different. They made uh, they were had a big emphasis in Windows 8 to saying we don't want a junk drawer of notifications. And that was a, a dig at what Apple's doing in iOS and what Android has always done where there's this thing, this piece of UI that you can pull out that lists all your uh, notifications. And, and iOS users have been begging for that because they hated the stupid modal dialogues and if you dismiss the notification, it was gone forever. And, you know, oh, wait, what was that text? I missed it. Let me see my past six texts. Mm-hmm. You know? And so... Not having that was a big deal. But then Microsoft comes out and says, well, you know, Apple just spent all this time adding this thing. We're saying that was a bad idea to add that. We don't want a junk drawer of notifications. We we don't, we don't want this place down. By using the phrase junk drawer, it's like it's language that's setting it up to be a bad thing without explaining really why it's a bad thing other than saying, oh, it's messy. Uh, Steve Jobs did a similar thing when he was talking about the Finder where there was too many windows in the Finder. I don't want to be the janitor to clean this up. All right, so if you, just the way of talking about something, is an implied sense that it's bad without a real explanation of why. Why is it bad to, to have lots of windows, Steve? Because the, it's visual clutter that bothers you. Well, what if I'm looking at the contents of both of those windows? Maybe two windows isn't so bad if I really need to see what's in both of those windows. You know, what you're calling clutter to dismiss it. Well, of course I wouldn't want that. You know, I don't want to be the janitor. I just want to have one window, right? But that, that's rephrasing in a particular way. So by calling this thing a junk drawer, it's implying that oh it's a mess and it's just got a bunch of stuff jumbled in there but it's you know it's really kind of an, a time order list of things and in ios 5 you can pick exactly what you want to appear there and how you want the notification to appear it's actually very flexible and powerful and i think that notification interface is interesting but microsoft's philosophy as in many things in windows 8 runs counter to what both android and apple are doing and saying we want our notifications to be on the tiles because they have that whole tile interface. If you don't remember what that is, go back four episodes listening to the whole business on tiles. They say, if it's important, update your app tile. You've got this big canvas on which to write stuff and you can put a small thing there and when they zoom in on the tile, you can get more information and when you launch the actual application, you'll see the full thing. I like the fact that it's different and I'm interested to see how that works, but... I don't like the idea of flipping through four or five screens worth of tiles to check everything for notifications. You so just know what what happened in the two hours since I picked up my phone or my tablet. Having that quote-unquote junk drawer full of notifications is nice. You just, you say, "Oh, here's everything that happened." If I have to flip through and scan every tile, is there a new notification there? No. Is there a new notification there? No. It's, it would be kind of like scanning through all your icons on the, the home screens on an ios device looking for badges and then like tapping on those badges to get more information that's that's an interface that apple could have gone with they didn't they did they did the uh quote-unquote junk drawer thing uh so it'll be very interesting to see how their philosophy turns out in real life when someone gets a windows 8 tablet or a windows 8 phone do they find it better that notifications appear as tiles or is it w- are they going to be begging for a junk drawer And again, just as Apple is adding something, Microsoft is not so much taking it out, but saying we're never going to do that. Uh, Background processing. This is something that they tiptoed around in the Windows 8 presentation. They didn't want to talk about like, what's running and what's not. That's why we were having all these discussions in past shows about like, well, is the desktop environment running until you launch it? Uh, Or does it support real multitasking? Is it going to kill your battery? Uh, You know, and... They did talk about it when you're in the Metro land on Windows 8 with all these new style applications. My impression is that applications are only running when they're on the screen. And I don't think there's any guarantees that they're even in RAM when they're not on the screen. So certainly it seems like they're suspending everything except for the front most application. I mean, they have to be because you can't, you can't just do everything can multitask everywhere. It will destroy your battery life, especially when you have when one of those things in the everything is a full-fledged desktop environment that will just, it will just kill a phone battery or even a tablet battery. Uh, so they are doing, although not talking about it as much, it seems like they're doing something very dissimilar to what iOS does, which is the frontmost application is the only thing guaranteed to be running and in memory, and we'll try to manage stuff for you behind the scenes. They didn't talk so much about user uh, the application developers writing their applications to know how to restore their state exactly to the way it was, which is a very important part of iOS development. And it's a significant part, like it's a significant effort to make sure that if I hit the home screen anywhere in your application, when I relaunch that application, I want it to bring you back to right where I was before I hit the home button. And there's some work involved in that. Uh, Apple provides some help for you to do that, but it's up to the developer to do a good job on that. That wasn't emphasized as much in the Windows 8 stuff. Maybe they just don't consider it as important, but it did seem to me that they were saying You're not running if you're on the screen, if you're not on the screen, and you may not be in memory if you're not on the screen. Uh, Cloud roaming.
0: Before you do cloud roaming, let's do our third sponsor, the final sponsor. All right. Shopify.com, the internet's most elegant, customizable, and affordable hosted e-commerce platform. This is what I've always used to sell the 5 by 5 merchandise, the the t-shirts and other things used it for HiveLogic stuff years before that, and I know a lot of other people have used it too, and it's because it's easy to do. You just want to sell stuff online? Don't screw around. Just go to Shopify.com. You can sell anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Anything at all. They handle everything. They make sure it's secure. They have really awesome templates that are free. If you want to spend a little money and get a really, really high-end template, they have a gallery of them there. If you're a designer and you want to design your own, you just use your own HTML and CSS. It's a piece of cake to do it. Normally, they give you a month free. For 5 by 5 listeners, they're giving you three months free. Use coupon code 5 by 5 Go to Shopify.com. Sign up. Three months free. And you can sell stuff during the three months. It's not like you can just set something up and twiddle your thumbs. A shop in minutes of business for life. Shopify.com. It's easy.
1: Did you give them that low, That slogan? Slogo? Slogo. Slogo.
0: I gave. They came up with the uh, Shop and Minutes business for life slogan. Sh- My slogan <laughs> for them is, uh, "It's easy."
1: I think uh, Staples or somebody already has that one.
0: That's that was easy.
1: Oh, totally different. This You're is right. just it's easy.
0: Yeah. Plus, when I say it, I do a little karate chop gesture. It's easy. That works really well on a podcast. Yeah, but it's part of the slogan. All right. It's tempting to make a
1: "slogan" of the title of this episode, but we'll <laughs> save that for later. All right, cloud roaming. So when Microsoft talks cloud about
0: roaming, the, Microsoft <laughs> talks about the, silliest, cloud stuff, the silliest, term I've ever heard? Did you come up it, with that? It,
1: it? It's in my notes. I'm assuming I copied it from something somebody said. Uh, it makes cloud sense. Cloud roaming. So when they talk about <laughs> this, they people like it. I think I liked it, and, and it seemed like the audience liked it because they say things that make us happy. Just like we all liked it when Apple introduced iCloud and and the things they said during the iCloud presentation were the things we wanted to hear. That, uh, you know, that they rearranged that diagram instead of the Mac being the digital hub. Now the cloud was the center and the devices are around it. And this is an arrangement, a a mental model that people who use internet services like Dropbox have long come to appreciate and say, yeah, that's the way I want it to work. That's the arrangement that we like. So when Apple said that they're going to do that, it made us happy. And similarly, when Microsoft talked about this in the Windows 8 demo where they said, they gave some examples of saying, like, when you finish a game level on, on a device, you shouldn't have to play that same level again on another device. right? Or when you change a setting on a device, you shouldn't have to change that setting again. Like, you, do, you know, don't remind me of this or don't show this dialogue like that. I don't want to have to change that everywhere. And that was that was them trying to say that we think everything you do should be recorded in some central place. And that all your other devices should pull from that. And that's the arrangement that we all think is a good idea. The cloud-centric, everything everywhere. Don't make me repeat myself. Don't make every single device be an island. And when they talk in generalities like that, most people are like, thumbs up. Yep, that's the way I want it to work. I love that, that cloud-syncing stuff. Just everything is everywhere. Uh, Steam does that, for example, with the newer Steam games. I forget what they call it. They have some name for it. But if you set up your key configuration that you like for you know playing Portal and you bring up another machine... And you install Steam and download portal onto it. You don't have to reset your key config. It's already there because it pulled it from the cloud. And we're like, yes, that's nice. Because we all remember the old days of having to set up the key configs. And every time you install it, or even if you just got a new computer to replace the old one, it's a hassle to do that stuff. You just want it to work and be automatic. Uh, And they do something similar to iCloud where they say, I'm assuming this is for free, that every single application, every single Windows 8 application gets some small amount of Per user cloud storage for for the state of the applications, for settings, and a small amount of content. Like it's not giving you gigabytes where you can store like your photos and everything, but it's right. giving you stuff for all the settings and a small amount of content, and enough state to provide that nice syncing uh, experience. Yeah. So Microsoft was saying all the right things there, and saying all the right things. Even if it's like we're going to give you that. That seems to be like the the price of entry now. Uh, this gets back to my uh, point from many shows ago about how how data centers and Server operations are now just an essential part of anything you do with technology. Like it's very, very hard to be, uh, t- to field any interesting product that does not have a significant, very important, essential server side component. And it's why I was saying that every company in the technology space needs to either have or be developing good expertise in the areas of, of uh, server side process, even something like I said, well, what if you're an individual app developer and you make a to-do list application? Well, the better to-do list applications now have server components, you know. And you say, well, they could just use iCloud. Even if even they just use iCloud, there is a server component. Maybe the developer doesn't have to make the server component. But that's, that adds value to an application. Like think about something like Instapaper where, yeah, there's a client application. Uh, But the client application is nothing without the web service that's behind it. And Marco had to write that web service and he enhances the application by enhancing the client, too, but also by enhancing the web service. They go hand in hand. You can't, you know, you can't take away the web service. I just want to write Objective-C. I don't want to do any of that server side stuff because it's annoying and you get these big traffic spikes and I have to provision hardware. And yeah, that is hard. But having that expertise and doing that is what makes your product valuable. Uh, so this cloud roaming thing is yet another instance. Apple's uh, Apple, Microsoft is releasing Windows 8. It's a great new operating system. It's got this cool new UI. It's got all these gestures and look at all these cool devices. And we've got uh, this contracts thing. But oh, yeah, we of course, we have to have a server component. And increasingly, of course, there has to be a free version of it. Like maybe we'll charge you for more content. But it's just such an entry level feature that just every application, every Windows 8 application gets to store their settings in the cloud. No, no, no argument, no any pieces. Anyone can have it. It's free, whatever it is, Windows Live ID, whatever they changed the name to. You know, that's just that's just the price of entry. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's such a big deal unless you're Microsoft or Apple and you realize providing every application with a free little bit of storage or every iCloud user with free uh, you know, sinking of their contacts and stuff like that. Well, when you have millions of users, that becomes a big deal. And suddenly you're now in the situation of figuring out how to run giant data centers and scale them and handle large traffic spikes from, you know, Christmas morning when people get stuff. And that's just that's just part of uh, the industry now. I think Microsoft is probably well equipped to do this. Uh, I think they're going to run into the same problems that. We just talked about with icloud where all right so this sounds great and everything but like to give the example of like when i change a setting in an application i don't want to have to ever change it again well what if on your windows 8 tablet you say oh the home screen i want the tiles to be this size like zoomed in because i i can read the notifications then or whatever but on your phone you want that setting to be the opposite i'm making up a setting i don't know if this is a real setting you want that setting to be the opposite because the screen is smaller do you have the ability? to say, actually, I would like you to use a different setting based on the device. Now, normally, I want, you know, my key commands to be the same in all places where I run this game in Steam. But for some settings, it's device-specific. On, on my PC, my Windows 8 PC, I want this. But on a, a Windows 8 tablet, I want that, and, you know. Th- now they have a conflict like, well, we want to hide all these details from you. It's all built into the application. It's up to the application developers to use our APIs to write to the cloud. But does now the application developer have to provide some setting that says, uh, when you go to the settings application, all right, well, change the setting to on and then a sub setting that says, "But only on this computer right like you're you're opting out of the cloud syncing for that particular setting or something like that. It becomes very complicated where you're merging settings together where these settings are you know what I want my default to be this, but if i don't override on this particular device, I want it to be that <laughs> that That gets into stuff that only programmers want to think about, Uh, but it's a complication of cloud syncing. I just don't think everyone people have got it figured out yet. Uh, Dropbox, is like, well, Dropbox has got it figured out. They do. They have a simpler scenario. They just deal with files. Last updater wins. They don't prompt you for conflicts, although they do create those little. I don't know if uh, Marco, I don't know if Merlin's ever seen this, but I see it a lot because I am not careful with how I use Dropbox. Where you get the, uh, it'll be the file name of the document, and then it will add parentheses deleted in some. Big hex number. Have you ever seen that in Dropbox?
0: Well, to pay, I mean, at which point?
1: You'll be editing a document. Like oh, have and a, then you'll see it.
0: Are, Usually it seems to happen after you save it.
1: Well, what, what I'll get is I'll be editing a document on my Mac at home. And Dropbox will be synced and everything. And then I'll go to work and edit that same document, but I'll happen to catch it before it's like fully synced or something. And when I come back home oh. and wake my Mac up from sleep, the document has been renamed in Dropbox to have parentheses deleted, some hexadecimal number. No, you, know, you
0: know, I have seen that, but it's been a long time since I've seen that. I have seen it in the past,
1: and that's it's that's Dropbox's way. Only of, if it's
0: really, really big file, though, right?
1: No, no, small file, like text really? files, like they're just my show notes because I update show notes and, and <laughs> you know get the thing. I get the same thing, and does it happen a lot? Yeah, because I'm constantly doing simultaneous updating when one computer is asleep. Hmm. And so you end up with a situation where there's a conflict. And Dropbox says, well, I don't want to overwrite your changes. Like, I'm not going to make the document that you have open suddenly disappear and change because it's different. But I've got to sync the newer one from Dropbox, so I'll just rename yours off to the side. And then I have to kind of do my manual merge of the two things if I was interested in that data or just say, oh, yeah, that's old. I don't care about that. I, I duplicated that work elsewhere. Like That problem still exists. Uh, and you do see it if you push it too hard and get into situations where, again, where Dropbox's assumptions like, you know, that your computers are always online and we can resolve these conflicts. Sometimes they ju- you just get things out of sync and it just does that for you. And, the, and a regular user saw that they have no idea why that said parentheses deleted or maybe they continue editing that because it'll save that parentheses deleted one in your Dropbox and sync it like any other file. But then when you happen to look in your Dropbox folder, you're like, why are there three of these files and two of them have this weird thing in parentheses at the end? You know, it's something that people may not be prepared to deal with but but it exists but Dropbox I think has the simplest problem where there's like we just deal with files and the contents of those files we have no awareness of them it's much much harder when you're an application developer and you have things mean stuff like you have settings that mean things and some settings make sense to be global don't make sense to be global but you don't want to burden the user with dealing with that and you want to do what the platform vendor says to make everything sync but then your users complain that it's weird and yeah so this is a A frontier of UI development of figuring out the best balance between not troubling people with things they're not supposed to worry about and making them feel safe that their data is safe, but also not annoying people with a pervasive sameness across all devices for things that, you know, might want to be different in different contexts. I'll uh, skip to the end of this thing. I was They talk about autosave and save state. Yeah, they're, they're similar in Apple in that regard. They want you to auto save and they want you to save state and resume. We talked about that. Uh, it's two larger points that I want to make about the Metro stuff. Okay. One is I was thinking about and a lot of people talk about this but Android and Metro and Windows 8 and stuff like that where they say, well, what Apple's doing where for a long time, there wasn't even any multitasking, and now it's really limited to multitasking, and all these really harsh rules they have to keep things responsive and to keep the battery life up. Something I've seen online in a few places has been, and I thought of it myself, has been the idea that this is what's making Apple's devices better now. And the peop- But the people who are taking the opposite approach, like Android just letting everything run at once and having the process killers, and Windows 8 saying, you know, this is an operating system that runs on desktops all the way down to, to phones uh, and we're going to let everything run in the background when it's on the desktop and stuff. That that strategy, although detrimental now, in the long run, will be the clear winner because the hardware available on phones will advance just like it did on the on the PC. We, we kind of like we set back the clock and we're like, okay, we're, we're rewinding five years. But in five more years, our phones will be as powerful as uh, our PCs are now, and our PCs can handle. They have the CPU, they have the memory and stuff like that. So this these rules that Apple's coming up with now for limiting things, they're not stuck because they can just relax the rules later and they have a better they have better experience now. But in the end, you know everything will all run at once just like it does on the PC. We just got to wait for the hardware to catch up. And my objection to that has always been that's all well and good for RAM and CPU and everything else, but where you run into problems is battery, battery and the physical size. So this is some physics going on here. Where what is the best? Uh, how much energy can we store in a in a particular volume, right? And at what rate is that increasing? You know, unless we're going to have tiny nuclear reactors inside or tiny fusion reactors <laughs> inside there that are just converting matter directly into energy. Whatever, you know. Like battery technology is woefully inefficient in the, you know, E equals MC squared sense. And my question, my sort of rhetorical question to myself was like, well, so... What does that curve look like compared to the curve for CPU speed, RAM density, and stuff like that? Uh, and I always thought that that would be the limiter. That Apple strategy is actually going to be with us for a long time simply because battery technology is not advancing at, at the same rate as those other technologies as as the density of transistors on silicon and, and uh, CPU speed and all that business. The battery technology is just going slower. Now, there are a couple of Links that I found, there, there was like a the, uh, the Moore's Law for batteries. It was kind of like saying, well, here's the curve for batteries. And actually, it was surprisingly optimistic. That I don't think it was as fast as the Moore's Law for silicon. And actually, people said the Moore's Law for silicon, we were in for some trouble ahead as we reached the limitations of the wavelength of the light we're using for lithography and people looking into x-ray lithography and you've got these 3D transistors. Like, we're pushing up against some limits in our current technique for uh, manufacturing silicon Meanwhile, apparently battery technology has been, you know, I'm sure due to massive investment and in the amount of money involved in this, been making some pretty good strides. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that shakes out. Will battery technology for our lifetime be the big limiter and make Apple strategy the long-term winner, at least in our, in our lifetime, And that they'll never, Apple will never relax all those restrictions. So always have some restrictions in there because you just can't make, you know, the batteries can't hold enough energy and as low-powered as you make stuff, You can't make you can't make the components so low power that they don't need a certain size of battery and you can't make the battery any bigger because it's it's clumsy and people don't like that. Uh, Even today, where I see so many people who buy this $200 iPhone plus a two year contract worth thousands, right? And it's sleek and it's small. And what's the first thing they do? They slap on this lumpy Quasimodo backpack full of (laughs) battery that makes the thing the size of a bar of a soap. But they need to do that because they say, well, I need to be, you know, I need to wake up at 6 a.m. and I'm still working at 9 a.m. or I'm a business traveler or something. I just can't have this battery running around. So right. I gotta get this Mofi juice backpack <laughs> box, whatever thing. That's just what they've got to do. Like, and it's great that they can do that, but it shows that even in even with today's trade-offs, even with today's strict rules about multitasking and real limitations, people still want more battery life. And so battery technology is not keeping up with their demands. Like if Apple, if Apple could provide a battery that provided 12 hours of web browsing on their phone they would do it like believe me they would do it but currently the only way to do that is you need more volume sorry battery technology is such that even if we made the entire iphone out of battery nothing else was in It's it just a simply a battery we still couldn't provide you with enough energy and it to a good approximation that's what the ipad is if you open it up it's just basically a giant battery with a screen attached to it and then these little dangly bits off to the side iphone is mostly battery but you're getting down to small sizes where now the screen and the cpu starts to become a significant portion of the thing and apple so far has not been willing to make the thing thicker like if you look inside an iphone 4 the battery takes up like the one half of, of the thing but the battery doesn't run the full width and the full height of the case you, if apple wanted to they can make the entire case you know four millimeters thicker and make a full height full width battery covering the entire back of the thing maybe they'd have some problems with the uh, wi-fi antennas or something but i don't know But yeah, that battery would last a lot longer, but the thing would start to look more like a bar of soap and Apple doesn't want to do that. So this tension between how fast can battery technology advance versus how how fast can the other components advance is going to determine whether Microsoft and Android we'll have to rethink their idea of, of even having the possibility of just everything running in like desktop mode, you know like you know a windows eight tablet well we can get a big hunk in fourteen inch Windows eight tablet and put a huge battery in there and then every you can run your desktop stuff and how long does that last? does it last does it suddenly become like a laptop battery you know three hours four hours that like people would find that unacceptable if you had a tablet where the battery lasted three hours and the only reason we accept it on laptops is because we're just used to it, and that's how it's always been right uh so that's that's my battery, my open question on battery technology. I got to put those links in the show notes too. The, the Moore's Law for Batteries Curves. Uh, and, and the next, the final thing is that looking at Metro, uh, Windows Metro, that UI, it, re- it really is the antithesis of typical Microsoft design, which is why people are so excited about it. It is just everything removed, it, no shading, no artificial 3D, no, no geegaws, no widgets, flat stuff, nice typography, emphasis on typography, uh, plain colors, and just a clean look. And looking at Metro, maybe I mentioned this on a previous show, I'm just iterating it, but looking at Metro, it made, I looking back at iOS, it made iOS look old to me, which is it's a pretty, hmm. pretty amazing achievement. Because yeah, that's really. usually what Apple does with its products, right? Like, they come out with a new product, and then you look at the old one, and you're like, oh, that's a piece of crap. <laughs> or, like, l- looking back at 10.3 with those pinstripes in Mac OS X, right? You're like, oh, j- how, did right. I, how did I ever stare at this screen? This is hideous. These drawers and the pinstripes, like, it makes you, f- it's it's fashion. Fashion makes you feel that way. Like, how did I ever wear those bell bottoms? How did I ever have a mullet, you know? All right? So, that, I think, is quite an achievement, and... That gets back to the whole skeuomorphic, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The whole business of Apple loves to make its UIs look like things, like the reminder things with the time. to look like those flippy overclocks where the numbers slip down and around. Uh, I wonder if Apple will feel any pressure because there is now a competitor who, regardless of how they do in the market, the look of their products makes Apple's products look older and clunkier. And I can't remember the last time that happened. Certainly, it wasn't happening with Android. Android was not making Apple stuff look older and clunkier. But this, just through sheer simplification, is Mm -hmm. saying, hey, Apple, if we just fast-forward your timeline, given current trends, your UI should look like this later. Because historically, Apple has, with various bumps in the road, removed Mm -hmm. stuff like that, removed texture, removed... It's kind of reversing now. So this is a lump, (laughs) and this is definitely a bump in the road. They went way... They removed, 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 all the way up to, like, Mac OS 10.5 Leopard... And then they started adding back with 10.7 and with the, the leather bits on the calendar and the linen pattern. And then iOS 5, they're adding back. Like we had pretty clean buttons in earlier iOS, but now with that linen texture is everywhere. And our applications have these weird papyrus looks. And there's leather on stuff, too. And there's little, the flippy, I wish I knew what the name of those were. You know, the, the digits where they have half the digit on one side and half the digit on the other and they flip over.
0: Oh, no, but, I know exactly what you mean. Flippy yeah, digits. I
1: don't know what no, those it's are the called. The technical
0: digits. term is flippy digits.
1: But yeah, but adding like think about that. They're adding that in there because someone thought it was like whimsical and interesting, but it makes it's heavyweight. Like you look at it and like the mental weight of that stuff. This is all artsy fartsy designery type stuff, but they I think anyone who's a designer or someone who's into aesthetics looks at that and then looks at the metro stuff and the metro stuff is like, "Oh, that's like a breath of fresh air." Right? And now it may, you may like the Apple one better and it certainly is awesome. those are the best looking flippy digits I've ever seen, right? Their the artwork is amazing and it is interesting and it's and it's fun and it's familiar to people. And maybe it's a more successful design. But the feeling you get as as an artist or designer or someone who's into these things when you look at Metro and that is one of them feels like weight being lifted off your shoulders mm. design-wise. And historically, Apple has always been the company that gives you that feeling. You'd look at Windows, then you go to Mac O'S10, you'd be like, ah, oh, nice. Just finally all that stuff <laughs> is gone. I don't have to look at 16 color icons and sharp edges and <laughs> right. great yeah. bevels and stuff, right? And this is, this is an flip, interesting flip. Now, I still think I like the way iOS 5 looks better, but here is another competitor UI that they seem very committed to, committed to giving me the feeling that normally Apple gives me. This no. may have no significance because obviously the other factors will determine the success of Windows 8 in the market much more than this, but it is a turn of events that I noted. Yeah, Put a marker in the, in the timeline of a technology battle here. Mark around Microsoft giving me the Apple
0: feeling for the first time. Hmm. So you're switching?
1: No. I don't even have an iPhone. Switching from what? Yeah, but, yeah, that's, your, I, that's your iPod Touch One touches. more minor point that I'll squeeze in here that Horace brought up from ages ago and I had in my notes forever. I gotta find it. His point was about that there's still no competition for the iPod Touch, which is amazing because the iPod... This is from a tweet of his. The iPod... Apple sold 4.1 million iPod Touches last quarter and 23 million iPod Touches in the last 12 months. Nobody else wants a piece of that. Nobody else thinks that they can sell 23 million phone without a phone products, right? That's pretty amazing that for all this time, Android and Windows 8 and Windows Mobile and whatever, Windows Phone 7, nobody wants that. Like, we make phones, we make tablets. There's nothing technically preventing them from making an iPod touch, which is basically an iPhone without the phone with a bunch of parts, you know, cheapened up because you can't, you know, have the subsidy from the phone thing. They could make that. It's within their technological grasp. But nobody does, and it's not, well, we don't think that's a good business. 23 million units in a year, You're, you can turn up your nose at that. Nobody wants to make that. Uh, I, I think one of the interesting things about the why is that? Why aren't they making it? It shows the, the weaknesses of those platforms because the reason Apple can make it is that even without the phone and without the always, avail, always online stuff, they have so many other strengths in the media world where they can make that device. What can you do with that? You can play games in your house. You can, you can download and watch movies. You can listen to music because it's an iPod. All those media and application things make that thing worthwhile. It's why I use it all the time. So yeah, I use it on Wi-Fi and I can do my web browsing because it has a great web browser. I can play games and run local applications, even if it's not online all the time. And I can download media from a store and buy things and watch movies and stuff like that. The only other company that I think has those same strengths and could field a device like that is Amazon. What would you do with an Amazon thing the size of an iPod Touch it didn't have any sort of 3G in it. You still do all the stuff you could do with the, with the fire. You read books on it, watch movies, watch mm-hmm. TV shows, and ho- hopefully eventually download applications. Uh, but Android, I, I think the Android vendors are like, if we put out an Android phone that doesn't have a phone, what are people going to do with it? Go to the awesome Android store and buy first-run movies that are, you know, download music from our music store and listen to stuff or play games. Like, yeah, you can play Angry Birds. You can probably download a couple movies or if you're a geek, you can, you know, download and rip and shove stuff on it because it's all open and everything. But that's not, that, that market is too small. That's not 23, 23 million people don't know how to download torrents of movies and stick them on their Android thing. So I've always considered the lack of an iPod Touch competitor as, a, as an admission by the competition that their devices are not valuable enough without the phone functionality to be a standalone product. Or at least they think it is. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe it really would be a great seller if someone would just make one. And there were like I think Samsung or a couple other people have had iPod Touch competitor like devices. And you could argue that 7 inch tablets are creeping down to that thing too. I think they even fielded one like a, I don't remember the names like the Galaxy something or other. Blah 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 was like a, was like a Samsung phone without the phone, but <laughs> didn't didn't set the world on fire. Right. But yeah. So I the lack of iPod Touch competitors is something that I will continue to watch and what it says about the competition's confidence and the actuality of their ability to compete with Apple. Uh, I think is uh, very interesting. We are over time, but I Mm. think I probably finally, I skipped a bunch of Windows 8 stuff. Believe it or not, I actually skipped stuff. But yeah, I think we're done with it finally. And then next week, if no one else dies or no other major software is released or no one else has interesting podcasts that I want to comment on, I'll talk about what ails Microsoft.
0: All right. What ails Microsoft, potentially seven days from now. Uh, and if you're new to this show, you can go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical. There's, not including this one, 38 episodes for you to get caught up on. How many, how many would they have to listen to a day between now and the next week to get fully caught up?
1: You know, I recently caught up on a podcast that I hadn't realized existed. And it takes a long time to get caught up on podcasts, but okay. it's worth it. Just resign yourself to not being caught up for six months and just go through it. Just go get, through it. Get caught up excuse to work out a little longer walk on a treadmill a little bit longer listen to one episode a day
0: or lengthen your commute perhaps take the take the scenic route
1: someone in the chat room gives the name of the thing it was called the galaxy player yes that was the thing I was thinking of Ah. and yes it counts but they're not selling (laughs) 23 million of them a year
0: okay so uh let's see Syracusa on Twitter S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, and uh, lots of good shows for you on Five by Five. Should go there. Incomparable. That's a good one to get caught up on. You can hear John Syracuse in a whole different, whole different way, whole different light. Seem a whole oh, similar. Di- ah, really? You really come out of your shell on that show. Mm-hmm. You were on fire today, though. Here, this is a good one. This is one for the record books today. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in and uh, we will be back next week. Have a good week, John. You too.